I'm here to uh, kick off our new conversation for the next four weeks, Good Goals, Bad Gods. All of us would say it's good to set goals, uh, regularly and evaluate goals, right? Because they help us uh, give direction, kind of affirmation for a desired result. I, like many of you, uh, have set a few goals for the year, uh, one of which to eat a little better and to exercise more often. And so I uh, found, kind of carved an additional window to head to Planet Fitness on Monday afternoons at about 4.30. And I discovered a temptation that I never anticipated this year. So I made it there on the first Monday of January. And after I got off the elliptical, went to the shower, and on my way out, I pass about 12 boxes of pizza. Apparently, the first Monday of uh, every month is free pizza night at Planet Fitness. I've since learned that they have free donut day and free bagel morning as well. So now I've decided that if I upgrade to the black card, I can get free massages and dinner without ever hitting a weight, right? <laughs> I hope your health-related goals are going a little better than mine uh, this year, but some of us may consider financial goals. Maybe there's a pot of money that we want to begin saving towards retirement or educational career goals. Maybe some of us want to read more, so we're adding subtitles on our television, right? It's hard to do, hard to do when, you're, when you're streaming, uh, but rarely are goals ever bad. We don't say, hey, I want to binge watch Netflix in 2019, or uh, I want to play 100 games of this strategy game Splendor on my phone, right? Uh, or I want to add to my semi-tire kind of... Uh, mid-section to be uh, a little larger, right? Rarely are goals bad things. The problem becomes when the good goals in our life become the ultimate drive and obsession of our life. When our goals become the thing with which we derive our identity, our self-worth, and our value from. All throughout Scripture, God uh, is cautious for us to place people or things in a place with only which he deserves. We see early uh, in his top 10, the 10 commandments, this instruction to be careful not to make gods of other things around us. We see in Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. We see this theme repeated throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. First John, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, the topic of idolatry sometimes sounds a little bit Old Testament or maybe that's for less sophisticated cultures that may struggle with wooden images. But we too, as a culture, can very easily get wrapped up in giving people and things a place with only which God deserves. And so we want to start that conversation today talking about the idol of success. We recognize it's good to be high achievers. We want to instill within our kids that they would be high achievers, that they would work hard at getting good grades, that they would land a uh, successful, well-paying job. The problem becomes when we become too achievement-oriented. 
that we define our life based upon our achievement. There's a counselor named Mary Bell. She works with high-level executives. And she was interviewed in this book, Success in Excess. And she was quoted as saying this about achievement within our culture today. Achievement is the alcohol of our time. These days, the best people don't abuse alcohol, they abuse their lives. You're so successful, so good things happen. You complete a project and you feel dynamite. That feeling doesn't last forever and you slide back to normal. You think, I've got to start a new project, which is normal, but you love the euphoria and you have to have it again and again. The problem is you can't stay on that high. Say you're working on a deal and it doesn't get approved, but your self-esteem is on the line because you've been gathering your self-worth externally. Eventually, in this cycle, you drop the pain level more and more often. The highs don't seem quite so high. Unfortunately, in our pursuit of success, at times we can be willing to sacrifice our family, our health, and our morality on the altar. In this pursuit of success, we need to be cautious and aware when our desire to be successful is becoming closer to a God than a goal. I'd like to start by taking a little bit of a personal assessment of saying, what area of success am I a little bit more inclined to maybe struggle or consider? So I have four statements that I'd like for you to write down to take notes and try and find yourself here in this pursuit of success. Goals may be our God when acquaintances are what distinguish me. When I seek to meet other people to serve a need to feel important. When people become a status symbol or a stepping stone to get to what I want. When my desire is to be a part of the in crowd, that it's more than just a high school phenomenon. That I associate my worth with who I'm surrounded by. My goals may becoming more of a God. Here's the second one. Goals may be our God when accumulations are what delight me. When the things that my success and achievement bring become the things that I end up searching for. That I trust a new convenience to make life better and easier. A better car will bring me the satisfaction that I'm missing. A new house will stoke that level of contentment that I've been searching for. More clothes will make me feel better. My next purchase will bring me the peace that I so desperately desire. Goals may be our God when accolades are what drive me and accomplishments are what define me. When I determine my value and worth based off what I've achieved and what I've received. When my goal in introducing myself to someone new is to make sure that they walk away know, knowing how successful and important I, I am. That I want to lead and I want you to leave that conversation knowing my resume, so to speak. We can do that talking about our kids. Always wanting to share how driven and accomplished they are. We can even do that within the church. 
right? Letting uh, you know of what we've been able to accomplish for the Lord. It reminds me uh, of a time my senior year in college. I had from the outside a rather successful collegiate career. I got decent grades. I was involved in a lot of student organizations and I won a few awards. Towards the end of my senior year, there was a process for applying for this award and I kind of threw my name in the hat. And I won uh, the University of Akron Senior of the Year Award. I was feeling pretty good about myself, right? Big man on campus. I'd accomplished a lot and other people recognized that and they knew that about me. Well, at the same time, I was really feeling the tug to pursue ministry. My undergraduate was business and I started considering avenues with which I could uh, begin a career in ministry. And so I was involved in an undergraduate fraternity while I was at college. And I decided that I would look across the United States where there were universities that had seminaries with undergraduate fraternities and sororities and I would start applying for positions to serve in those campuses. And time after time, no, no, no. It seemed like every application or stone that I was turning was unsuccessful. I had a resume built for business, but I couldn't land any job in ministry. So I decided I'd buy myself a little time, and I chose to work out at a uh, Christian sports summer camp called Summer's Best Two Weeks. And as I prepare to kind of graduate and head out to camp, they sent an email saying, hey, would you be interested in being accredited in a certain area of camp, whether high robes or what I chose was to be a lifeguard. So I went out to camp two days early. And I head out there, I get a good night of sleep, hop on the bus, and we go to the local pool with all those who are going through lifeguard training. And we get out and we have this really beefy guy who gives us instructions and he says, okay, the very first thing about lifeguard training is you have to pass a swim test. Now, I thought of myself as a decent swimmer. I considered it when my basketball career didn't pan out in high school to join the swim team. At age 17 and learn I had to shave my legs, I was a little self-conscious and decided that I wasn't going to do that, but I was an adequate swimmer. So I'm ready for this swim test, and he gives us the instructions and says, you have 10 minutes to swim 24 laps. So in the process, I'm like, okay, I think this is doable. And he says, the first eight are freestyle, the second eight are backstroke, and the third eight are breaststroke. Now, I'm a little worried because I've never swam the backstroke or the breaststroke before. Now, like you, I've watched Summer Olympics, and I've met Dan, who uh, swims at the University of Miami, Ohio, and he's in the lane next to me, and so I'm going to watch him as he's doing these strokes. So we take off. I'm falling a little bit behind, but I'm exerting myself to try and keep up with the rest of the crowd. So I'm looking lap four, lap five, lap six, lap seven. I begin to glance at the clock. And I'm decent at mental math, and I recognize that four minutes have passed. And if, if I were to continue in freestyle at the pace with which I was, which was impossible because I was dog-tired, that there would be absolutely no way that I would finish this swim test and be able to pass for a lifeguard test. So I get out of the pool, 
And I sit on this long wooden bench that would be my seat for the next eight hours. I remember that summer. When I look back on that summer, it was a hard few months. My self-confidence was at an all-time low. I went from being the big man on the campus to Adam who failed his lifeguard test. I had students who could swim a lot better than I did at camp. When we live based on the approval and our self-worth is derived on others, it breeds a lack of it breeds comparison, a lack of contentment and competitiveness in our life. There's a story that I want to share this morning. It's about a man on the outside who's extremely successful. He's wealthy, he has power, he has prestige, but there's something missing. And I believe there's some principles for us in this pursuit of success that we can find and derive from. The story's found in 2 Kings chapter 5. It's a decent amount of verses, so I'm going to tell you the story and encourage you to read it on your own this week. Share it within your grace group. It's the story of a man named Naaman. Naaman uh, is second in command in the army of Aram. Aram is to the nation to kind of the right on a map, the northeast uh, corner of Israel. They are enemies of the nation of Israel. And they've been rather successful in their war voyages. And Naaman is the equivalent of the prime minister. So he has power, he has prestige, but he has a problem. He has leprosy. Now leprosy in the Bible is actually a uh, group of skin diseases which are fatal and very severe. They would strike the same kind of chord that we would hear of news of a loved one having cancer. It didn't have a cure for leprosy. It would actually get to the point where Fingers and toes would begin to fall off. It was so severe and debilitating. And so Naaman, in his power and prestige, had a problem that he couldn't fix. In one of the Syrian raids, they would take home captives of war. And so there was this young servant girl from the nation of Israel that became a slave in Naaman's house. She worked for his wife and she told Naaman that there was a prophet in the nation of Israel that he should see and be healed of his leprosy. So Naaman goes to uh, the king, his buddy, Ben-Hadad II, and they hatch a plan together. Ben-Hadad is going to write a uh, raving review, letter of recommendation, that Naaman will take with him into enemy territory, and he will meet the king of Israel, and he has the possibility to be cured of his leprosy. And so Naaman accrues wealth in a caravan of people. They head into enemy territory and they're going to the palace to see the king. They head up to the palace and Naaman delivers the letter and the king reads through it. And it says that he tears his robe in disgust. He says, do you think I'm in the place of God? that I can offer you the healing that you so desperately desire? 
You, I know that maybe the way that you interact with the gods from the nation that you are, that you can pay to receive something, but I have no power within me to grant what you're asking me to do. He thinks maybe that there's a political ploy. This is just another setup for the Syrians to raid more value and people from the nation of Israel. Now, when the king of Israel tears his robe, everyone in the nation of Israel hears about it. So Elijah the prophet hears of Naaman's circumstances and says, send Naaman to me, which was actually the instruction that the servant girl had given Naaman in the first place. Go see Elijah the prophet, not go see the king. So Naaman makes his way, travels to go see Elijah, and knocks on the door. And out comes a servant of Elijah. And he has rather simple instructions for Naaman. Go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River and you will be cleansed. Shuts the door, heads back inside. What do you think Naaman's reaction is? He's angry and he's furious. Doesn't that prophet know who I am, that he didn't come out and greet me? I am commander of the army of Aram. He sends out a servant to greet me? How dare he? Didn't he come out and give me a personal interview that he would wave his hand over me and cure me through some ritual? And he asked me to go down to the Jordan River, the dirty Jordan River. I know multiple rivers from where I'm from that are more cleaner that I could rather go to to experience healing. And Naaman, in his anger and frustration, he begins walking away. He's planning to head home. But he has some of his servants in the caravan that go up to him and say, Naaman, think about this for a second. If the prophet had asked you to do something great that would show your strength and your valor and your worth, would you not have done it? Naaman considers it for a moment. Why not follow the simple instructions that the servant has told you? He came all this way. And Naaman willingly humbles himself and he heads down to the Jordan River. Imagine he had all this army gear on and he begins to kind of take it off and he heads into the river and he washes himself once, twice. And on the seventh time, he stands up and he looks at his skin and it's the skin of a young boy. For years, he's seen his skin peel and fall and now he looks and it's like restored from what he had when he was young. I can just imagine him jumping up, excited, giving high fives to all of his servants in his caravan. It's like, this is amazing. This was well worth the trip. So he heads to Elijah's house and he meets Elijah and he says, now I know that there is one true God in all of the world and he resides with the people of Israel. I now recognize the gods from where I've come from. They aren't true gods, but the one God resides in the nation of Israel. And he offers out of the bounty that he has brought, please, Elijah, take a gift. And Elijah refuses. 
And he says, go in peace. Now, I think for you and I, there are some principles to consider from the story related to our pursuit of success. So we're going to look at them and then support them with other aspects of Scripture. And the big idea related to success is success is found by overcoming my need to be acknowledged and acknowledging my need. You see, Naaman in his pride became fury and angry because he wasn't recognized for what he thought he had accomplished. That he wasn't valued with significance to the point that Elijah would take time to come and greet him. But in the point of admitting and recognizing his insufficiency and need, he was willing to humble himself. You see, the way things work in the kingdom of God are drastically different than the way things work here day to day. Because it's not the, the successful who always finish first. But it's rather those who humble themselves that will be exalted. Look with me at a few verses that we find. James 4.10 Humble yourselves beneath the Lord and he will lift you up. Luke 14.11 for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you do a quick survey throughout the Bible related to pride, you will see that pride comes before the fall, that it brings disgust before God, the spirit of pride. That in Proverbs it says, Pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. Luke, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. We can spend so much time getting others to believe that we are important, that we can craft our image, sell ourselves, when in reality, what God has asked us to do is to recognize our insufficiency, to recognize our weakness, to recognize that we don't have the power in of itself to earn anything before a perfect and holy God. That it's when we come to the point of acknowledging and recognizing our need that the opportunity to become successful begins. That it's at that point when I can recognize my need that the solution is called the path of humility. That the path of success first begins by being willing to bow my knee. Recognizing who I am and the needs that I have and living my life with a vulnerability and recognition that I don't have everything together. That I make mistakes, that what I project on the outside is not always what I feel on the inside. It's this path of humility that God begins to work in our lives, recognizing that approval of others will never fill the approval that God offers us through his son, Jesus. It's this path of humility that changes the way and lens with which we view success. Because it's by a different set of standards that we need to live and align our lives by. I'd like you to write this down. In the pursuit of success, we should make it our goal 
to align our life by permanent standards of success. It's so easy to begin to view our lives through standards of success that we set up for ourselves, that our family does, maybe those around us, that we can concern ourselves with a standard of living or a job title when God seems to be more concerned about our faith and our faithfulness. We concern ourselves with accomplishments and accolades and how much our hard work is able to produce when God seems concerned about our character and our integrity. You see, there's different standards with which he measures success. There's a verse in the Bible that for me, I like to think of it as God's success statement. In a very succinct way, he gives us how he evaluates whether things are successful or not. It's found in Micah 6, 8. And it says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before our God. This idea of acting justly is living with a strong sense of right and wrong, moral uprightness. It's being both proactive and reactive to injustices that we see around ourselves. It's fighting for those who experience the injustices that we see in our culture. It's living with a deep sense of moral rightness. But it's also loving mercy. It's this Hebrew word hased, which is loyal, loving kindness. That it's extending grace, mercy, compassion, forgiveness to those who always don't deserve it. It's loving to extend compassion and grace, especially in times to people that may have hurt us. To act justly, love mercy, but it's always done in a certain posture, in a certain manner. And that's one of humility. I think many of us recognize that it takes a great sense and deal of humility to come to a point to say that there is absolutely nothing we can do to earn favor or to be right with God. That it's what he has done in Jesus that allows us to uh, stand before him, to be accepted in his eyes. But the question I often wrestle with myself is that if my said yes to Jesus moment was years ago, how have I grown in humility? Am I more humble today than I was 5, 10, 15 years ago? Am I willing to eradicate pride in my life? Do I live with a deep sense of vulnerability and honesty? Or do I try and project the image that I always have things together? Because God's standards of success are very different. May we make it our goal to align our lives by the standards that will set the test of time. I heard the story of Naaman uh, preached and taught for many years, and I think I glossed over one of the significant characters in the story. It's someone who's only given two verses of attention and 
she really is the true hero in the story. It's this small servant slave girl. She was trafficked from her own country. She was a victim of war, ripped out of the only home that she known and was placed in a house to be a slave and a servant. She had every right from our standards to look upon Naaman and be like, you're getting exactly what you deserve. You're the enemy. You ripped me out of my home. Now you're making me a slave. I'm glad you're dying a pain, slowful death. But she doesn't do that. She's able to offer hope and direction to Naaman. Saying, Naaman, if you go where I'm from, there's a prophet there who can heal you. With compassion, she's able to point Naaman to a physical healing that becomes a spiritual healing for himself. I think for you and I, much like the slave girl, we need to make it our goal to replace selfish ambition with selfless compassion. That we would eradicate this idea of selfish ambition on the pursuit of success and rather focus on the opportunity to express selfless compassion. Look with me in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united, yoked with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing from his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, Paul's writing, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit, in one mind. Look in verse 3. He says, do absolutely nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others above myself. Doing such with the same mindset that Jesus has exhibited for us. That he was so concerned with our success that he was willing to sacrifice himself. About eight, nine months ago, uh, I recognized that I have three kids, uh, Maggie, Cooper, and Jenna. Maggie just turned seven, Cooper's four, and Jenna's three, that they weren't learning their letters and numbers as quickly as I had hoped. So uh, I decide that I'm going to have an activity in a game, uh, a little competition to uh, spur them on to, towards learning their letters and numbers. So at bath time, we uh, bought these foam letters, and I decided in the game that I'm going to give Jenna the first opportunity. I'm going to put a letter up. And if she guesses it correctly, it goes to her pile. And then Cooper has the opportunity to do the same thing. And then it finishes with Maggie. In, when I started this game, Maggie won every time. She was feeling pretty good about herself. She's cut from her dad's cloth. She's competitive. She'd rub it into her brother and sister all throughout the time. Uh, that she always won the game. Well, over the last few months, the tides have changed. Jenna will win at times in Cooper, and Maggie will finish with like four or five letters. And she is infuriated, right? 
She wants me to come up with new rules and new games. But you know what's interesting? This game says absolutely nothing about Maggie's knowledge. She's seven. She's in first grade. She knows every letter and number. She should, right? But she looks at this activity in a way where she only can view her own success. She doesn't recognize the opportunity that she has to help her brother and sister learn their numbers. I think often we sometimes get very singular focused in our pursuit of success. That we don't look at those around us, our family, our friends, our neighbors, and the opportunities that we have to live our lives in such a way that concerns ourselves with them. That our pursuit of success, whether it be a career or something that we have deemed uh, necessary or appropriate or a goal with which we're achieving, that we don't take the time to recognize the influence or opportunity we have to help make Jesus make sense to others, to live our lives in such a way to offer compassion and mercy and grace to those around us. Would we make it our goal in the pursuit of success to replace selfish ambition and to live our lives with selfless compassion. I wish the story of Naaman ended there, but unfortunately, it doesn't. Elijah has a servant by the name of Gehazi. And uh, in a moment of weakness, uh, Gehazi follows for a get-rich-quick scheme. From what we know of Gehazi is that he has served Elijah previously, maybe for many years. Being a prophet in the nation of Israel at that time wasn't an easy job. He faced a lot of persecution and hardship. It wasn't a favorable type of job role. But as Naaman's heading back to his land, Gehazi thinks this is an opportunity to get rich from this foreigner. We don't like him anyways. They're our enemies. And so Gehazi runs after Naaman and he presents him with an opportunity for him to give. He says, hey, we have this need in our ministry. Would you be so gracious and help us with this amount of money? Well, Naaman, of course, wanted to give him the whole kit and caboodle just previously. And so he more than willingly obliges. He's just been healed. And he gives them twice what Gehazi was asking for. And Gehazi heads back home and he makes sure he hides the silver under his bed And he meets up with Elijah. And Elijah says, he didn't have GPS back then. Gehazi, where have you been? And Gehazi directly lies to Elijah. And he suffers the consequence that Naaman was just healed from. A life of leprosy. Now, we can look at Gehazi and be like, man, that dude's a toad. But in a moment of weakness or an opportunity, he allowed greed, which is subtle, dangerous, and sneaky, to divert his attention in the pursuit of success. You see these warnings from Jesus in Luke 12. He says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Be suspicious of it. Build a good defense around it. Be aware of its tactics. 
Ecclesiastes 5.10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. That the pursuit of wealth can be deceitful and deceptive. That greed is addictive. That success can be seductive. Would we make it our goal in the pursuit of success to never take short-term shortcuts? To value our character and integrity above any opportunity to pursue success unethically or immorally. Maybe we be willing to value our character above everything else. That if we have the opportunity to tear down a coworker with the hope of being able to get that job promotion, that we would not allow ourselves any opportunity. That we'd be sensitive of wanting to work angles to try and get, get ahead. That our integrity would matter so much that we would be truthful on our taxes, not hoping just to pad our income a little bit. Right, that we would live our lives in such a way that our character and integrity is of utmost importance. That we would never be willing to take short-term shortcuts because eventually they're never worth it. That in our pursuit of success, our character and our morality is of highest importance to ourselves. I think for you and I, there's a lot of encouragement and principles related to the story of Naaman. Our achievements will never be able to cure the insecurity that we often feel. Our accumulations will never be able to purchase us the peace that we so desperately desire. Our connections will never produce the community that we so desperately need. Selling our image will not produce the intimacy that we hope to experience with other people. But true success is found only when I'm willing to acknowledge my need, my insufficiency. Because it's the weak things of the world that shame the rest of the world. That God uses our insufficiency and our weakness to make him great. That he allows us through humility to make much of him, not of ourselves. Can we live our lives in such a way that we are concerned utmost with permanent standards? Things that won't fade when we leave this life, but rather things that will stand the test of time for all eternity. Can we make it our goal to keep each other accountable to not take short-term shortcuts? To recognize that it's never worth it to sacrifice our integrity on the altar of success? And can we live in such a way that we overcome selfish ambition with selfless compassion? That we look at the opportunity that we have around us to help Jesus make sense? to do the one thing that Jesus has told us to do, and that's to make disciples, right? Allowing him to build his church, but would we focus on the same set of standards that he has laid out for us? Because as much as I want the approval 
of each of you and others around me. The greatest approval I want is to stand before God, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. May we live our lives in such a way that we evaluate success in the same way that God looks at our success.